Welcome to the Quantified Body episode 10. I'm your host, Damien Blinkensop. Today, we're looking at high-intensity training. This is a training protocol originally established by Arthur Jones in the 60s and 70s. And you may have also heard of this through Tim Ferriss, his Geek to Freak experiment or his 4-Hour Body book. Uh, the 4-Hour Body actually featured today's guest uh, talking about this method of training. Now, this is a very efficient style of workout. It only takes like 12 minutes per week, sometimes 20 minutes, depends how you approach it. And it involves a very convenient method of tracking that allows you to optimize for your recovery needs. We've spoken about recovery before and using heart rate variability to assess your recovery needs and thus maximize your strength gains or your metabolic gains. Around 2008, I was doing a lot of CrossFit, which most people know of. And so it's a very intense type of and, and very frequent high volume type of exercise with um, very high resistance training and so on. And this wasn't working too well for me. And then I discovered uh, a book, Body by Science, which we'll get into in a minute, which completely changed the way I approached it. And I moved to this style of workout. I did much, much better in terms of my productivity at work, my energy, and so on. And I'll get into that a bit more. And it involved this high-intensity training. And ever since, it's the method I've stuck with because it's the most efficient. And I love the fact that you can optimize it by measuring specific variables and optimizing for recovery, which I found is the most difficult thing. The other great thing about this is it combines both metabolic and strength training. So a metabolic is often termed cardiovascular or aerobic. And we'll get into a bit more detail in this interview why it is probably a lot more appropriate to name it a metabolic adaptation. And that's what you're kind of working on. So what's unique about this workout style is that you're not going to have to go and do your typical cardio and your weight. It actually does both at the same time, which is another reason why it's more efficient and was really suitable for me as a management consultant with not a lot of time. So if you're a busy person, this could be a very interesting episode for you. So Doug McGuff is an emergency doctor. He's a gym owner and a weightlifter. His book entitled Body by Science, a research-based program to get the results you want in 12 minutes a week, was published in 2008, and it describes an optimized high-intensity training workout. And the science behind it and all of its benefits. It goes very deep, in fact. Doug himself has been practicing high-intensity training since the age of 15. That's like 37 years, so he's got a lot of experience in this. And a lot of people remark on how young he actually looks, right? And that's actually something that a number of people pointed out about high-intensity training. So there's not really any research behind that, but there are potential longevity benefits just based on anecdotal evidence. Doug has also been training clients with high-intensity training since 1997 when he opened his gym. That's 17 years. So he's got a lot of data. He tracks a lot of data, of course, uh, related to his client's performance and his own with the method you'll learn about in this episode. As you'll see in the interview, Doug has a very solid grip on the research and science behind his workouts. Hope you enjoy the episode. To get the show notes, the interview transcript, and the MP3 download of this episode, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode 10. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, 
and improving lives. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show today. As I mentioned, I've been using your workouts since 2009, and they really changed the way I approach everything and really helped me in various areas of my life beyond working out. So I think this is a fantastic, interesting topic. And of course, it's got loads of quantifying areas too. So thank you for coming on. Thank you, Damien. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to give people a bit of background, uh, you published your book, uh, Body by Science, in 2009. But could you give us a brief background of where these workouts and this approach came from, a bit of the history, and what led to you publishing that book? Sure. It's been a lifelong interest of mine, probably since I was about 14 or 15 years old. I started working out around that time, and I was doing it to improve performance as a, a BMX racer, which is a type of sprint bicycle racing. Um, and it worked so astoundingly well that I was immediately hooked. And that was back in the late 1970s. And it just so happened at that time, uh, the Nautilus training concept uh, was exploding. It was uh, invented by Arthur Jones to introduce the idea of high intensity training that by making the intensity level of the exercise higher, that the exercise could be more effective and more time efficient. I traded my janitorial services for a membership at a Nautilus gym, and while cleaning up in the office, um, I found a copy of the Nautilus Training Principles uh, Bulletin written by Arthur Jones, and the owner let me take a copy of it, and um, I read it cover to cover in one sitting and have been interested ever since. Um, Over time, that concept of high-intensity training has been refined more and more over the years. The idea behind high-intensity training is that the intensity and the amount of training are inversely proportional out of necessity. And as more and more refinements were made to produce higher and higher levels of intensity, what was found that was that for the body to recover and produce a good adaptive change, that that ratio, that inverse ratio was actually quite disproportionate that for any incremental increase in intensity you were able to achieve through modifications in protocol or equipment that the amount and frequency of training had to go down disproportionately. Probably the first time that that was really driven home was in the 1980s when Nautilus was researching the use of high-intensity strength training for the treatment of osteoporosis. And they created what led into the super slow exercise protocol, uh, lifting and lowering the weight very slowly in order to protect these elderly, frail women that were training. And what they found was two things. One is very little went a long way. It was very easy to overtrain people. And two, a rate of progress that was much more dramatic than what they had seen in the past. And they thought perhaps that was attributable to the fact that these were elderly and deconditioned subjects. But when they took the protocol and applied it to more normal athletic populations, they found a similar sort of response. And over the years from that point forward into time, that sort of protocol has been refined more and more by the inventor of the protocol, Ken Hutchins, as well as other people Uh, that have made different tweaks to that protocol along the way, both in terms of protocol and equipment. And that's kind of where we have arrived today, where we have really refined things so that it can be very hard and very brief. 
Right, to give someone a kind of rough idea of what this requires with with the people you're training, how often do they work out? When you look at the population in general, how well you recover from exercise is kind of distributed on a bell curve. On the extreme left tail of that bell curve, you have people with very good recovery ability that can recover from this kind of workout in 48 hours, but they're quite rare. On the opposite end of the curve, you may find some people that need 14 days, sometimes longer, to completely recover between workouts. And in the middle, you're going to find the average recovery time is going to float somewhere between four and nine days, with seven being roughly average. So that's where most of our clients tend to fall out. Um, We have a handful that train twice a week and do well at it. And we have others that either because of their lifestyle, they're full-time shift workers, night shift workers, have small children, they will end up falling out to about an every 12th day frequency. So it's variable, but the average is about every seventh day. And how long does the training session last, typically? Most of our training sessions will last somewhere between 8 and 15 minutes, with there being a certainty that any given client will not one second more than that. The workouts that tend to run a little bit longer will either are actually in the less robust subjects. In small, petite females are not so strong, or our senior clients that are older and perhaps a little bit frailer, they require a little bit more time between machines, and they can tolerate a higher volume of work because they're not bringing so much punishment to themselves like uh, is the case with a much stronger person. So in that case, you have them do more types of exercises, more individual exercises to get them more volume? Yes. Yes, they can actually tolerate a higher volume of exercise. And sometimes in order to deliver an adequate stimulus to them, we actually have to do a little bit more than we do with someone that's able to train with a higher level. The clients that workouts last a little bit longer, it can be either because they have some sort of limitation that makes us have to be more gradual about working our way up to muscular failure, or just their tolerance for high-intensity exertion is such that we kind of got to take an incremental workup to actually uh, reaching the level of fatigue necessary to trigger the stimulus, whereas someone that's more aggressive and stronger um, can for lack of a better term, um, do themselves in uh, at a faster rate because they can tolerate a higher level of fatigue accumulated more quickly. Right. So for the people at home, I just want to make sure they they get um, all of the concepts we're talking about. So when it comes to volume, you're talking about, how would you explain that in kind of layman terms? Well, we do typically anywhere between four, three to six, typically about five movements. And each movement is done only one set. The set is carried out in a way where the muscle is under continuous load and there's no escape. And we typically use super slow reps, which is on the equipment we have, a excursion in the lifting phase of around 8 to 12 seconds and the same in the lowering phase. So the movement's quite slow, and that is to deprive the client of using any momentum to get out from under the load. So the muscle is being continuously loaded and fatigued, and that results in reaching a point where they can no longer move that load 
typically in about one minute, 20 seconds to two minutes. They'll typically bite the dust somewhere in that time frame. And then we move quickly from one exercise to the next. So you go through those five movements very quickly. So you got two minutes reaching failure on each machine and very little rest in between the two. So in your case, uh, volume is really equating to time that you're actually doing each exercise. If you add that up, it's like the total volume. Yeah, and the reason we did that was the way that we know whether a client is appropriately recovered between workouts is simply by the record keeping. We know the resistance they used last time, what their recorded time to reaching muscular failure was. And on a subsequent workout, if they are not performing in that realm or we see a drop-off in performance, we know that recovery may have been inadequate as a cause for that. So that gives us some sort of feedback on adjusting their volume and recovery so that they're showing improvement on a workout-by-workout basis. What we found initially is that when you're using a very slow rep cadence, where you're going 10 seconds out and 10 seconds back, each repetition lasts 20 seconds. So simply counting repetitions provided too gross of a measure of performance for us. Because someone could do four repetitions and that could be the full 80 seconds, or they could have stopped somewhere around 72 seconds. And if you just recorded four, you never would have seen the difference between the two. So we started running a stopwatch on it just to get more of a fine-tuned dial so that drop-off in a performance when you're using such slow reps would then become evident to us. Right. And simply put, if you're lifting the same weight, as you said, resistance, a longer time, then you're getting stronger. Technically, yes. Although you really have to be careful with that because the process we're trying to trigger is very intrinsic. The stimulus that is causing the adaptation we're looking for is called inroad. And inroad is the momentary fatiguing of muscle. If you start out with 100 units of strength at the beginning of the set, at the end of the set, you may end up with only 40 units of leftover strength. And how quickly and aggressively we can go from 100 down to 40 determines the quality of the stimulus. So what you have to be careful is that both instructor and client are focused on that intrinsic goal. It is possible to focus on the extrinsic goal, making the weight go up and down for longer. And if you focus on that goal extrinsically, then what you can do is you can sandbag during the easy parts of the range of motion. You can squiggle and worm and do anything to milk out extra time to show apparent progress on paper. So the process only works if the subject and hopefully the instructor are blinded to the actual recording process. So the client, we don't show them their weights. We don't let them know a goal time. We just have them. And literally, sometimes what we're shooting for is actually a shorter time under load. We want them to police their form in such a way that they bite the dust sooner rather than later. Because it's possible to be coming very close to failure and then heave and jab and do some sort of form discrepancy, which actually compromises the stimulus, but gives you an extra rep. And that's what we very strictly want to de-emphasize and keep them blinded to their performance so that they're just focusing on that and performance occurs organically 
and in a blinded fashion so that we can use that data in a meaningful way. And our instructors, when they're running the stopwatch, they're not sitting there watching the stopwatch, comparing it to the prior performance, because then you start to coax the wrong behavior out of the subject. The stopwatch is either hanging on the machine or held behind the back so that however it turns out is really just serendipitous to the process. Right, right. So this is very interesting. Uh, so you're, you're basically trying to do it in a controlled manner so that the data isn't biased by, as you say, squiggling, kind of like cheating just because you right. want to hit the same mark, which I remember when I was doing this, I have to admit that sometimes I wanted to get the same time or like greater than the week before. Yeah, it's a very strong human tendency to do that sort of thing. When in fact, if you're really becoming more refined at applying the stimulus to yourself, you may go from one workout to the next and all of a sudden you're reaching failure 10 seconds sooner than you did previously, but for a good reason. So you kind of have to have some insight into that to be able to milk the most out of the protocol. But one thing that became evident as we did this in a blinded fashion is that when you've selected a proper weight, and there's a pretty wide range of what this proper weight can be, what happens is you end up recruiting the targeted musculature, the motor units in that, in a sequential fashion. You fatigue one set of motor units that are slow twitch, and as soon as they drop out, then you jump to the next set of motor units that are higher order intermediate twitch. And if you fatigue those quickly enough, you'll jump next to your highest order motor units that are the strongest, but the fastest fatiguing. But when you do the set correctly, you're recruiting those in boxcar-like fashion, one right after the other. And what the time under load ends up representing, at least this is my theory, is a signature of what your fiber type mix is. And what you'll see is once you get up to a meaningful resistance, then on a workout-by-workout workout basis, in a blinded fashion, the client starts to fail almost to the second. We first saw this, we had a client that would fail on the overhead press at 1 minute 21 seconds every time. So once you found that, you are now at a meaningful resistance. And that meaningful resistance has a fairly broad range. So if you want to progress the weight or the resistance, once you've found that recurring time under load or that signature time under load, that is a period during which you can jump the resistance on a workout-by-workout workout basis fairly aggressively. Now, eventually that falls off. There is a range of meaningful weight for that particular time under load. Eventually you get heavy enough where some imperfection in the machine's strength curve or friction or something is going to make you have a sudden drop down in your time under load. But there's a broad range of weight where you're almost going to reach failure to the second. So when you say reaching failure to the second, what does that actually mean? That means you've reached a time that's going to be the same every workout? Yeah. Okay, so the instructor loads you in the machine, says very gradually start the movement, get it moving, keep it barely moving. They reinforce that you're doing not resting in lockouts, smooth turnarounds. But the moment you started, the stopwatch is behind their back and they push start. And they police very good form and you lift and lower the weight until your fatigue reaches a point where you can no longer make the weight move. 
because your force output has dropped below the selected resistance. At that point, he'll have you try to attempt to produce movement, even though it's impossible for several more seconds. And then that will reach a point of failure where you can no longer sustain the effort. And then he presses the stop button on the stopwatch, again, behind his back. This workout, it says one minute, 21 seconds. He records that on the chart. You come back next week. We increase the resistance by four foot-pounds. Repeat the process. You reach failure. Stopwatch is behind his back. He pulls it out. It says a minute, 21 seconds. Uh, so you're progressing in weight, and the time is remaining still, which means you're, you're getting stronger. Correct. Yeah. Or it means that you're at least aggressively recruiting all of the musculature that you have available. Because what you'll find is as people become very advanced, the limitations of this quantified approach are not the subject and his body, although that is a somewhat of a contributor. The bigger contributor is the limitations of the equipment and the mechanics involved. Every movement has a sticking point which is sort of like a little speed bump where the resistance is higher than it should be for your strength output and your leverage at any given point in the range of motion. So you have this movement that's got a speed bump. Well, when you first start out and you're not very strong and you're not using a lot of weight, it's like pushing a Yugo over a speed bump. But by the time you become very strong and you're using a higher resistance, that sticking point becomes much more meaningful. Now it's like pushing a Mack truck over the speed bump. So by speed bump, do you mean certain muscle fibers are kind of like the weakest link? No, I mean that there is something about the movement itself where there is a mismatch between the resistance the machine is delivering and the force output of your muscles. So if anyone's ever done a chest press or bench press type movement, you will know that the hardest point in the range of motion is when your shoulders and your elbows reach 90 degrees because the involved levers and moment arm of those levers have a lowest force output at that point. And there's no real way to construct into the machine enough of a drop-off to account for that. So there will always be a sticking point as you come out of the bottom and your elbows reach 90 degrees. And that becomes a rate-limiting factor after a certain amount of weight where you will always fail at that point in the range of motion for purely mechanical reasons. Okay, okay, right, right, understood. But that's not so important. As by the time you reach that being a problem, you have already progressed quite a bit and become much, much stronger. And then you are into a realm of the exercise that becomes more difficult to quantify, but is actually even more productive. Because what you come to understand then is you have progressed through this well enough to understand the internal process going on, and you have become much more adept at simply using the resistance as a tool, the resistance as something to contract your musculature against. Because the continuous contraction against a meaningful load that produces a deep level of fatigue is the stimulus. Eventually, Increasing load over time, it's not just the load going up over time that produces the adaptation. It's your ability to contract against a meaningful load and produce a deep level of fatigue that's the stimulus. So you don't have to forever progress the weight in order for there to be results. So it 
what appears on paper does not necessarily always reflect what's going on internally. And that is because of the mechanical limitations of how we apply the resistance to the body. Okay, okay, understood. So well, to take your example, I'm sure you know, you've been doing this for a very long time now. You're going to do this and you're going to get stronger week by week. And eventually you're going to hit a, a peak genetic point, for a better word, where you've kind of built as much musculature and strength as you're genetically susceptible to do. How long does that take and, and what does that mean for the workouts afterwards? Well, it's variable for different people. Um, some people ramp up to a full expression of genetic potential within a matter of 12 weeks. Other people, it seems to draw out over many, many years with a quick rise up to where the curve becomes asymptotic, but then very gradual improvements over long, long spans of time. And those gradual improvements are eked out by becoming more and more masterful in the application of the stimulus to your own body. And that's where the really neat aspects of this kind of training come in, because you get not only the physical adaptation, but all of those sort of Tai Chi, Zen-like mind-body connection benefits that come along with that. And to some extent, the science is starting to bear out how quickly you approach that asymptotic curve has a lot to do with your own genetic makeup. What, sorry, could you clarify, what does asymptotic curve mean? Well, if you picture a sigmoidal curve where you start off with a gradual rise in slope and then it becomes very steep, almost straight up, but then the slope becomes more gradual. So it's like an S-curve. S-curve, yes. Right, right. So asymptotic right. is when you get to the top of the S and you start to bump up against your potential. Right, right. It starts. So you're, you're getting less benefits per workout at that stage. Correct. Yeah. You, it's sort of a diminishing marginal utility, but it's because you're reaching the limits of your own adaptability and genetic potential. Yeah. I think there's a lot of... I just wanted to bring up that um, uh, since you popularized this method, um, Tim Ferriss also has popularized it with his 12-week uh, OCAMS protocol and his posts about Geek to Freak, I'm sure you're aware, has created a lot of controversy because people don't believe that it's possible to gain that type of mass. But I just wanted to bring up that basically he's is exactly the same method as your method, and that's why. Yes, um, he actually consulted with me when he was writing The 4-Hour Body. He was, I think, in the... It was supposed to be a two-hour Skype consult. Uh, I think he was in the Dominican Republic at the time. Or, <laughs> yeah, uh, but the, the electricity grid there was just very, very shaky. So the two hours ended up happening over about a three-month period. But we finally got it all together where uh, he gathered the information from me that he needed anyway. It was a fun time. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, because I'm sure people are aware of that also, just to make the connection that it's actually the same method and everything. One thing you just brought up is the mental aspect of this. And one thing that I've seen in myself and in, in other people using this protocol is that the first workout, they'll get to a certain level. And then the second workout, they tend to go a lot further. And I put that down to either psychology in terms of getting used to pushing themselves harder or actual neural development of the links between the muscle, the muscle fibers and the neural connections. So they basically got more bandwidth to tell their muscles to contract. How do you look at that? Have you seen that kind of evolution? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the answer to that is all of the above. What we're coming to find out about muscle is that it's more than just tissue that contracts and produces movement. Uh, it's actually turning out that it is the largest by mass endocrine organ in the body. It 
secretes all sorts of chemical messengers, uh, cytokines that have been termed myokines, one of which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, which causes neurons to reach out to each other and make new connections. And that's kind of part of improving your neuromotor efficiency and your ability to aggressively recruit muscle. Part of it is becoming tougher, simply. It's not that you're becoming limitless, but you're learning where your limits actually are and that they are, in fact, further out than you ever imagined them to be. And that's one of the benefits of this kind of training that goes beyond any objective physical results that you can produce is just the psychological benefit that comes from doing hard things. Yeah. It's like learning to overcome a challenge, which is really hard. Because the first time people do this workout, they find it very, very, very hard. And then they realize that just by trying harder mentally, that they can go a lot further. So, And that applies, of course, to other areas of their life. It kind of transfers. They can see that they can overcome hard goals and challenges like that. Mm. Yes. And it's amazing. Until you do this sort of thing, you don't realize the extent to which your body has almost like pre-installed software that sets up a panic reaction when you face muscular fatigue. When the window between what you're struggling against and what your capability is starts to close and narrow down, there is a panic point where you just try to escape that experience by any means possible. And it takes an understanding that that is there and a deliberate mental focus to overcome it And as you do that, your ability to overcome that panic and push through it reveals that where your actual end game is is much further down the road than you thought. And whether it's simply metaphor or if it's just a manifestation of the fact that this exists in many different areas of your life, I'm not certain. But what I am certain of is that as you become more adept at doing this, you become much more panic resistant in almost any situation. Mm, that's very, that's very interesting. Of course, like uh, beneficial. So I think there's you know there's so much in these workouts that I'm I'm trying not to miss important details. One of the the unique things about it is that you put all of the exercises very close together. So that's why we're getting down to this 12 minute window because you're starting with a chest press, you're going straight to a leg press and then a, a shoulder press, and you're literally you line up your machines. So if you're using it like machines to do your presses and you're kind of ready to go with the right weights and you move from one to the other as pretty much as fast as you can. Is that the way you run it? Yeah, you can go overboard with that concept where the metabolic effect of the workout can be a rate limiting factor. And it's a little bit of um, a tweak or an art form to get the most out of it without causing it to be an unnecessary burden to the rest of the workout. So for most of our clients, we do move them briskly between machines, and it can be anywhere between 5 and 45 seconds between the movements, depending on their metabolic condition at any given point in time. Your ability to deal with the waste products of high-intensity exertion is a trainable factor. So over time two things are happening and you kind of got to juggle these a little bit. One is as you get stronger, you're doing a much larger amount of both mechanical and metabolic work. 
So as you get stronger, you're producing a lot more metabolic byproducts of fatigue, lactic acid and, and such. And your body's ability to metabolically deal with that is trainable. So is that when we're talking about metabolism, would you uh, put that basically down to the generation of ATP and the mitochondria and the efficiency of your energy output? Yeah, there is a lot to it, though. I mean, it's more than just how quickly you can produce ATP. The experience at a cellular level is that the anaerobic portion of metabolism, turning glucose into pyruvate outside the mitochondria, doesn't produce a whole lot of energy per cycle, but you can turn that cycle really, really fast such that you can deliver pyruvate, the end product of that cycle, to the mitochondria at a rate faster than which it can use it. Now, once the mitochondria picks up pyruvate, it can make 36 ATP per cycle, but that cycle can only turn so fast. So when you are delivering pyruvate to the mitochondria faster than it can use it, pyruvate stacks up in the cell. When it does, that gets shuttled through lactate dehydrogenase and you make lactic acid. That begins to drop the pH within the cell, and as your pH goes from 7.4 down to 7.0 and beyond, the metabolic machinery and all the enzymatic processes within the cell start to fail and fall apart. The way your body deals with that is, number one, your mitochondria adapt and learn how to handle pyruvate more quickly. Number two, your body finds other destinations for the lactate. The lactate that's circulating in your blood can be brought back to your liver. And the enzymes that do this can upregulate. You can take lactate, which is circulating in your bloodstream, bring it back to the liver, and that can go through a process of gluconeogenesis to make more glucose. And that's a process called the Cori cycle. Your body learns to generate buffers to offset the acidosis. Your body makes a chemical called 2,3-diphosphoglycerate that makes your hemoglobin molecule offload oxygen to the tissues much easier. And that enzyme exists in higher levels as someone that lives in altitude like Colorado Springs or high in the mountains um, because you have to be more efficient at offloading oxygen. Well, you do this kind of training, you upregulate that enzyme. So there's multiple different things that make you more metabolically capable of high level of exertion and dealing with the byproducts of that high level of exertion. Right, right. And then, well, this metabolic aspect is traditionally, a lot of people say aerobics when they're referring to these kind of ad adaptations. They do, but that's incorrect. Um, aerobics is a term that just took on a life of its own. Aerobic refers to that portion of metabolism that occurs within the mitochondria. But aerobic became synonymous with any metabolic work or any cardiovascular conditioning, as if somehow magically just the mitochondria could be hooked up to the heart and blood vessels. But that's not true. The entire cell is serviced by the cardiovascular system. And number two is the aerobic system cannot even run unless it is delivered substrate by the anaerobic system in the first place. So exercise of any type only occurs when we start to rise the intensity above a resting level and start to deliver pyruvate more rapidly to the mitochondria. And the type of training that we're talking about today is just taking that 
delivery mechanism to um, its ultimate expression by taking it as aggressively as we can. Right. So what I wanted to make clear for people at home is in, instead of talking about cardio or aerobic here, we're talking about metabolic, which seems like a better term for it because it's, it's more about energy production. Right. And the book goes into that in great detail. Me and John Little, the, my co-author, wanted to make a big, big deal of making this metabolic distinction is that you don't just want, not only do you not want it, it is not really possible just to isolate a segment of metabolism and focus on it. What you really ought to be focused on in terms of having a level of fitness that is complete and actually confers survival benefit in extreme situations is you want global metabolic conditioning. And that's what this delivers. You can get more aerobic type metabolic conditioning than out of most traditional protocols because you're actually causing the aerobic cycle to run as fast as it possibly can. So it's like the HIIT, there's the high intensity training, which people associate with cardio work as well. Right. The sprint interval type training. It, and it does a very similar thing. As you move from one machine to the next, what you're doing is in a stair step fashion, you're stacking these metabolic byproducts and you are incrementally forcing the mitochondria to work harder and harder by delivering substrate to them faster than they can handle. So you're trying to hit peaks of intensity in terms of metabolic output right. so that your body's like, ah, we're going to have to be better at this next time because we got to deal with these peaks. Right. The advantage that doing it with controlled cadence weight training as opposed to an aerobic piece gives you is safety. In order to produce a level of meaningful intensity on any aerobic piece, you have to exercise in such a way that you risk injury because the forces have to go up exponentially along with the intensity. But with appropriately done weight training with a slow cadence, the forces, as the intensity goes up, the force is actually diminishing because you're becoming weaker and weaker, but you're doing it through a controlled lifting and lowering of a fixed amount of weight. So force is mass times acceleration. The weight you're using is a given mass, but the movement protocol is such that almost all acceleration is taken away. Right. I think people can relate to that because when they're lifting the weight, it gets harder over time, right? So when you're saying they're getting weaker, it's getting harder to lift the same weight. Right. But the force that your body is seeing is actually staying stable or in fact going down because the force your body's going to see is never greater than mass times the acceleration. And we've done everything we can to eliminate acceleration out of the movement so that your muscles are continually loaded, as opposed to being on an airdyne or a treadmill where you have to turn the speed up really high and everything's flailing around and you're pounding the surface harder and your joints are seeing more force. All the while, you're becoming fatigued and the force is going up, your risk for injury is going up, as opposed to when you're doing a controlled movement leg press when you hit failure, it's because you're producing less force than the mass you're trying to lift. So at the peak of intensity, it's actually getting safer, which is a very unique twist. Yeah, yeah. So there's less injuries. So I think one thing that we, we kind of skipped over is this is the major difference between this and traditional weight training is that uh, with traditional weight training, you have reps and rest in between each rep. So it's like one rest too when you got the bar but with this method it's a constant load you don't stop in between and there is no rest when you take the strain off completely um, it's just a constant movement correct and depending on the type of movement we're using 
we're enforcing a specific performance behavior to ensure that. So if you're doing a compound movement, a multi-joint movement, for instance, a pushing movement like a chest press, traditionally, as you get out to the top of the chest press, if you wanted to, you could lock your elbows and create a bone-on-bone tower and give yourself a little bit of respite. And what we do in our training regimen is as you approach that lockout, we never go to complete lockout. We stop our joints just short of lockout, and we do what's called a turnaround technique, which is basically a change in direction like you're going over a loop or cresting the top of a roller coaster so that you change direction from positive to negative in this very slow, continuous loop that occurs prior to joint lockout so that your muscles never get any escape from the load that they're facing. As opposed to a single joint movement, let's say you're doing a movement like a barbell curl or arm cross chest fly. In that, when you reach the point where the weight is completely lifted and you're in full contraction, you're actually under a much heavier load and there is no respite from the weight in a single joint movement. So in that, we will actually, after the second or third repetition, induce what's called a squeeze technique, where the person actually contracts harder against the weight and their congested muscle tissue to make the load that the muscles seeing actually increase. So there are specific behaviors that occur during different given movements that basically are carried out just to make it as hard as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... To give the listeners an idea, at the end of this workout, you're really breathing hard. You're, you're puffing as if you've been running. You know, people are typically used to that kind of experience when they're sprinting. Not so much when they're lifting weights because there's this rest in between. So the metabolic aspect isn't really pushed because it's like one, rest, two, rest. And there's that metabolic rest in between. But with yours, like what's the experience at the end of the like 12 minute workout? Yeah, it's dramatic. Your ears will be roaring. Your awareness will constrict down to like you're looking through a uh, paper towel tube. Um, Your heart is racing. You're breathing uh, very hard and very fast as a means of your body is blowing off carbon dioxide as a means of trying to normalize your blood pH from the severe lactic acidosis that's accumulated during the workout. So it would be very similar to the kind of metabolic experience if you ran an all-out 440-meter dash. At its minimum, it would be like that. I mean, it's a very profound and demanding metabolic experience. Yeah. So we're basically saying that this workout can do everything for you that the typical people, like typically people will do weights and cardio because they, they want the balance. But in terms of this workout, because it has this metabolic emphasis as well as the strength emphasis, then it's basically an all conditioning system. Yeah, it does give you total conditioning. Now, if there is a specific metabolic-oriented sporting event that you want to participate in, you will have to do some participation rehearsal of that kind of activity in order to turn your dial up or down for that specific combination of metabolic elements. But the workout will make you capable of doing that across a broad continuum. So if you want to go out and run a 10K, um, you will be in good condition where you can start off training for the 10K and then refine that without having to start from scratch. By the same token, if you want to be a sprinter, you're, you're well suited for that as well. 
but you do have to do some rehearsal of a specific metabolic activity in order to optimize your performance at it. So what you're saying, uh, adaptations are specific. So if you want to win a 10K uh, run, you should practice. Yeah, you've got to do a 10K. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so have you looked at other markers? Because I I think a lot of people at home don't, they're not going to be like, well, uh, come on, this can't be the same as cardio. Have you looked at other like biomarkers which illustrate the improvement in metabolic activity under like VO2 max or like potentially mitochondria markers or anything like that? Um, Well, you know, the book is replete with um, studies that kind of demonstrate that. So that's that's available in the bibliography of the book. And if anyone just wants to plug into PubMed and explore that kind of thing, you can see good evidence for that. Serendipitously, I mean, we're not doing it deliberately as part of uh, running the protocol in the business, but we do get lots of reports from clients of improvements in all sorts of metrics. We've had plenty of type 2 diabetics that were essentially cured that were on oral hypoglycemics and started to have spells of hypoglycemia because they essentially no longer needed the medication and went off those meds. We've had lots of clients go off statins because their um, all those numbers had normalized for them. Women who have their DEXA scan done every year that have shown reversal of bone mineral loss and no longer carrying a diagnosis of osteoporosis. You know, we've seen hemoglobin A1Cs drop very significantly. We've seen people that keep track of that or their C-reactive proteins and other things show very significant improvements. So, but that is all just anecdotal evidence that comes by the reporting of our clients. So there's definitely, that's not science. That is anecdotal evidence with a strong reporting bias built in, but it's still there. Right. It's kind of like any N equals one experiments. Each person oh, yeah, is yeah. like recording their own thing. Yeah, um, I wouldn't take any of that to the literature, but, um, but yeah. th- certainly plenty of anecdotal evidence through the facility, yeah. but that's not something that we're actively studying or seeking either. I can tell you my own experience, uh, just to add another, <laughs> another anecdotal one, is that I was suffering from chronic fatigue um, and... I was trying to battle that, just like pushing it. Like, so I was doing um, CrossFit and I, I was trying to eat paleo and making various changes like this. And I was exhausted still and having difficulty working and, and things like this. And, uh, and then I discovered your book and I started taking this basically very limited approach to stimulus, which is once per week, or actually it got to the point where I think I was working out one set of body parts we haven't really spoken about, but one set of body parts, like just the legs once every 12 days or something. So I was really taking the, the long recovery approach and I found myself getting more energy, slowly having more energy days, less lower energy days, and it got better for me over time. Uh, whereas CrossFit seemed to push me the other, which is a very high volume kind of a program. Yeah, and it will work, but... When you're faced with that kind of issue, what you really have to understand is that this is not something that can be overcome with a warrior mentality or a Navy SEALs buds training mentality. Because what you got to understand is those sort of indoctrination versions of exercise are not done as a stimulus response thing. They're not putting people through that in order to get them physically conditioned. They're putting people through that to weed people out to find out who are the most resilient intrinsically. So that kind of Johnny Quest mentality to exercise can backfire on you because this whole mindset of don't force it, get a bigger hammer 
really does not work because first you have to have the capacity and that capacity has to be brought out through intelligent programming that respects your body's need for intensity and recovery. Once you've done that, what you'll find is once you have given someone the metabolic capability and the muscular strength to function at a higher level, then their activity levels spontaneously rise. And when that starts to happen, then you have people that are conditioned in such a way that they find themselves going to do CrossFit activities as recreation. But clearly, um, I think that people that have chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, I really do believe that that is just a metabolic illness that involves mitochondrial downregulation. Um, the ability to generate citrate through the mitochondria is just downregulated over time because of dietary and activity issues. And that can be cured with an intelligent application of exercise, but it cannot be fixed by, you know, saying, okay, I'm just going to man up and bring a sledgehammer to this process because that will just backfire on you. Yeah, right. And there's a lot of controversy uh, about that chronic fatigue area, communities yeah. and so on, where the, the approach has been psychological, like you're talking about the psychological light, like just man up and let's push through it kind right. of thing, versus your approach, which is actually trying to define the exact stimulus you're capable of using at this moment in time, right. and then trying to identify the exact amount of recovery you need before you provide another stimulus. Right. And the, and the other focus is, is by using a protocol that uses 100% of the mechanical work that is going on to try to use the highest percentage of that mechanical work for producing the largest amount of the internal process that's actually the stimulus. And a lot of people, you know, the people that originated super slow that are now known as renaissance exercise, they have a specific term for this. Inroading is the internal process of producing rapid and deep fatigue. But they have this concept of inroading versus outroading. And outroading is just like moving furniture. It's doing a lot of mechanical work, but it's doing it with such a level of form that very little of that mechanical work is directed internally at producing rapid and deep fatigue, which is actually the stimulus. So you can have someone sling a sledgehammer at a tractor tire and do a shit ton of mechanical work, but very little of that work will be brought inward to the body, producing a very specific focused fatigue to produce a desired adaptation. So you can pound a tractor tire all you want, um, but not necessarily have spent all that mechanical work on producing much that is productive. Right, right, exactly. One of the points I think that's you know, really essential to this whole method is the recovery. And you know, you talk about this extensively. Um, we haven't really touched on that. Um, but how do you know when you need to recover more? Because you know, this is, this is the essential part which most people ignore um, and, and don't focus on enough. And we've spoken about this in previous podcasts, you know, the importance of recovery in any training program or, you know, in fact, in, in life in general. And obviously, today we run around like stressed individuals and we, you know, we push ourselves, we try to do exercise, we try to work and we, we try to sleep less. And so there's a lot less emphasis on recovery. So how do you define 
in, in this program, how much recovery is required before you train out again? And, and, and how do we know that, you know, we got to wait an extra few days? Like I, I explained, like eventually I was doing a workout, uh, so a kind of partial workout once every 12 days. So how, how, how do you get to that point and understand, because at first it starts at seven days a week, how do you understand exactly how, how much recovery you should be putting into it? Um, and, and this is probably one of the most important concepts of the book, and I will probably make this a final comment since uh, we're running out of time, but um, there are several ways of approaching this. One is when you have not appropriately recovered, when a client has not appropriately recovered, we can see that. Um, both on paper, there usually is a fairly marked drop-off in performance, but also their behavior um, as they're administering the stimulus to themselves tends to fall apart sooner. That panic that we spoke about earlier that they had mastered now expresses itself prematurely during the work set. So that is one evidence. From a more qualitative standpoint in a given individual, you will feel it. You will feel it in terms of the day after a workout. You will feel like you've been run over by a truck. You'll have that whole flu-like syndrome going on. And on a more protracted basis, what I always tell people is that um, the workout the next day, you should feel a little fatigued, maybe a little below baseline. But overall, you should feel invigorated and have a sense of well-being and for certain over the course of a week you ought to feel above baseline more days than you feel at baseline or below baseline and that is a gross qualitative measure that you can use for that but certainly your performance record will reveal it to you but you have to really pay attention to how you're feeling both the day after a workout and over the course of the week between workouts, you should definitely be feeling above baseline more days than below. Right. And before you go to your next workout, you should basically be feeling great. You know, yes. you know, if you're feeling in any way tired or anything, it's yes. a signal that you're not actually ready. Right. And yeah, I mean, when, when a workout is scheduled, if you go into it just feeling kind of meh, uh, that's not good. Right. You want to go in raring to go. You want to feel like you could tump a tr push a truck over kind of sensation. Yeah. And I'd like to say, I mean, that's one of the things I liked about this. It was like each, because you're only doing it once every week or once every 12, 10 days or whatever, you're actually really excited to go to the gym and you've only got 12 minutes to make the most of it. So I found that it's a, it's a great efficient exercise and motivation tool because you're like, I'm going to put as much in it because I've only got this one chance in 10 days to make the most of this. And the other thing that really drives that process is once you have an intellectual understanding of exactly what the stimulus is and how your body responds to it, then you really know that you want to apply that in the most effective way possible, and that's very motivating. Uh, there's a, The link to my blog is through Dr. McGuff, drmcguff.com. You go through there, there was a blog I put in there that was called Rock Hammer Nail Gun, and it describes the difference between different types of workouts and using equipment and technology and mental understanding of the process to refine that. And what you really want out of it is nail gun. So having an intellectual understanding of exactly what you're trying to accomplish makes you much more effective at doing a really hard, brief, and effective workout. The last point on the recovery was like, uh, in terms of the performance charts, the, the tracking the time, coming back to the time, I guess the biggest indicator that 
you need to recover more is if you're using the same weight and your time starts declining? Yes. A, not necessarily that it starts declining because you can have a few seconds drop off as a result of a, refining your effort and doing yourself in sooner. But when you've not recovered adequately, you will have a drop off in time that's significant. And that will be combined with a bewildering feeling of what in the hell's wrong here. Because you'll reach failure suddenly, you'll have that sense of panic come on way too soon. You will know that things aren't right. Great. I'm conscious the time is running out. And thank you for so much uh, information and, and detail. It's been great. Are you working on anything currently, anything like you can update us on? Or um, I'll put links, of course, to your blogs and everything. But is there anything um, interesting you're currently working on that you'd like to bring up? Um, right now, we are just turning in a manuscript to Mark Sisson, Mark's Daily Apple. He has a publishing company, but this one is actually being done by me and a co-author named Robert Murphy, Dr. Robert Murphy, who is an economist. And it is a expose and deconstruction of how the American healthcare system got where it is today. So that manuscript is being turned in at this time, and hopefully that book will be out in the near future. But right now, we're just uh, post my workout every week, a little subject on high-intensity training, some of the recent scientific literature is always on the blog, and I can always be reached for consultation and or questions through uh, drmcguff.com. I got all the social links, Facebook and Twitter, and uh, post pictures from workouts on Instagram every week. So there's always something going on. Yeah, yeah. And I'd add that your book, Body by Science, is extremely detailed. And, you know, we've we kind of jumped over many, many topics because it's so deep today. And it's so different. So that's really, you know, I'd highly recommend people get that. Yeah. And actually, if you go to on Amazon for the book, the book has a companion, a question and answer book. When we originally wrote the book, we turned in 840 pages of manuscript that had to be pared down to 209 pages. The question and answer book has everything else that was in there done in a question and answer format. And it's pretty informative as well. Well, great, Doug. Thank you so much for your time today. It's uh, been a pleasure. Yeah, Damien, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, thequantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.